Welcome to Encouraging Truths for Today. We're glad to bring you this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. Now please join us as we learn to grow deeper in our relationship with God and each other. I love reading Christian biographies of great men and leaders of the past that uh, led in great moves of the Holy Spirit among people and nations, people who were very faithful in the pulpit. I, I just love reading their stories. But one thing that's common among them, this common theme runs through their lives, they were good sufferers. They suffered extremely, but they found God to be extremely faithful. And so I want to read a couple of quotes from one of those men. His name is William Gurnall or Gurnall. I've heard it pronounced both ways. He was from the 1600s, so I need not fear offending him by mispronouncing his name. So from here on, he will be Gurnall. Just think about what we've sung and, and celebrated about the Lord he lived in a time where uh, the nation of England was somewhat divided and splintered and fractured. He lived in a time where the, the church was going through turmoil. There were those who were in the government-controlled uh, church, and then there were those who were dissenters leaving that church, many of the Puritans did, and uh, forming their own congregations in independent ways. He himself was a Puritan, but he chose to stay in the church of England and attempt to be a reformer and to preach the truth of God's word. And he did very faithfully amidst many challenges. His primary work that has been left to us is an 1,100-page exposition of Ephesians, not the book, but Ephesians 6, not the chapter, but Ephesians 6, 10 through 19, 1,100 pages. You can get the abridged edition in three volumes called the Christian in Complete Armor. My three volumes have been read and reread and written and underlined and stars and everything in there because they have been like a, an oasis that pointed me back to the Word of God because that's all it is. It's just a message about Scripture. Uh, it was one of the most cherished writings that Charles Spurgeon in the 1800s had in his 12,000-volume library. And I had the occasion to look at some of those first editions in the Spurgeon Library in Kansas City, Missouri, where they house that. It is well known that Spurgeon was an artist, and he would a draw a little hand pointing when he came to something that was very important because they didn't have highlighters. They had dip pens, not even uh, the fountain pens like they came to be. 
And so uh, they were looking for that as they looked through his library because if they found one of those pointing hands, they knew Spurgeon had marked that. And as I was working through uh, those volumes, those first editions of that, I found some of those pointing fingers. And it reminded me that that must have been a treasure for Charles Spurgeon who suffered greatly. So I just wanted to give you that background that, that William Gurnall uh, was not a shallow man. He suffered deeply, but he loved Jesus intently. So this is what he says in volume two of the abridged volumes of that. Even when heaven and earth are in ruins, not the least part of any promise from God will be buried in their rubble. Just think about the ruins we've seen, those images in our minds from this past week. None of that buries the promises of God for anyone in our nation or on the globe. Then in volume three, this is one of my favorite quotes of him. God's promises are many and fitted exactly to each particular personal problem. But it requires diligent study to gather them all in. God has purposely scattered these promises throughout his word rather than clustered them in one place. So we must search in every corner of Scripture and then rejoice at what we have found. And haven't we had that experience in our lives? And so as we talk about the promises of God, just keep in mind that those promises stay in place. Another one of my heroes that I spent a year just reading his journal of prayer requests and answers those prayers, George Mueller. This is my oldest son's favorite quote of him. George Mueller told his wife, if God fails me this time, it'll be the first time. What a great statement. So let's talk about the power of a promise from God, and let's do so by allowing the Word of God to address that. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, the power of a promise from God. Beginning in verse 3 of 2 Peter 1, his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption or depravity that is in the world through lust. Let's pray together.
Father, as we sang a moment ago, we, we do uh, um, appear before you today as people who are hungry to hear from you. And so, Father, as we sang, we pray now that, that here's my heart. May it be fertile soil for the seed of your word. May it not be snatched away by the enemy. May it not land upon calloused, hard soil. May weeds not choke it away. Here's my heart. I I want it to be fertile. We pray today, here's my eyes. As I gaze into your word, would you please help my focus to be where it ought to be on your word? Help us to have a sense that, that we're one-on-one with you and you're, you're speaking to us. So here's our eyes. And Father, here's our hands. It's so easy in being distracted to reach for something else, to turn from our electronic version of the word to social media rather than having a spiritual mind. But here's our hands and our fingers. And here's our mouth. As you speak to us, help us to share that word with others. That the body might be edified, that those around us might be evangelized, that Jesus might be exalted. And here's our feet to go and do whatever it is you say to us from your word today. So, Father, that's our prayer that you would speak to us from your word. Because unless you speak, I have nothing at all to say. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Something I found helpful in my personal Bible study is when I read a passage to keep doing that, just keep reading it and rereading it and rereading it, asking the Lord to, to give me eyes to see the, the heart of that passage. What, what is it that connects all of this, uh, all of those kind of things, but just the, the reading and rereading, and, and he has captivated my attention with these two verses. As I read and reread, I, I kept finding connections between the two verses we just read. For instance, you find the word knowledge there. He talks about in verse 3, the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. And then you find the word through that starts that sentence, through the knowledge of him. Then if you back up, you see in verse 3, his divine power comes to us through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Then if you move down to verse four, you find the word 
speaking in, in just as an express way about this, this knowledge that's been given to us. And through that knowledge, we have been given exceedingly great and precious promises that through these, you may be partakers of the divine nature. And so it's saying there that God has given us something that by that something, through that, we can do certain things, we can possess certain things. And so I want us to to focus on this, this knowledge that is a rich and full knowledge. It implies an intimate, personal relationship with God, a, a knowledge of Him, not just about Him, but a knowledge of Him. And so the keys to these two verses that, that kind of pull it together It talks about in verse 3 what has been given to us, or by that he has given us, and then in verse 4, we have been given. We'll unpack that together. Adoniram Judson, a pioneer missionary who struggled for year after year with no converts, said this, The future is as bright as the promises of God. You know what we tend to say? The future is as dark as my circumstances right now. But I want to remind you today as we walk through this passage, the future is as bright as the promises of God. It has nothing to do with our circumstances. So here's what we can say, and then we'll dig into the text. For the believer, the future is certainly not uncertain. The future is certainly not uncertain. We know that God is in our future. He's at work there. He's worked in our past, and all of that comes to bear on these two verses. He's done something in the past. He's doing something in the present, and he's planning to do and forecasting for us what he will do in the future. He's not just a God of the moment. He's a God of your entire life. He's not just a God of a a season, and he doesn't just come and do something and then leave you. He, He comes and he stays, and he takes care of your past, and he oversees your present, and he anticipates your future that he has already designed for you. So when we look at verse three, here's what I want us to think about. God has already given us everything that we will ever need. He's already given us everything that we will ever need. Notice how it says it there. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life, and godliness. That's why biblical counseling is so important because God has already given us the answers. And usually the answer is not the answer to the problem that we think we have because the problem is deeper and that's what the scripture addresses. And he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He has equipped us and that is found in his word 
and in what he has implanted within us by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so if, if you were thinking today when you came in, well, if, if God would just give me this, then I could serve him. Or if God would do this and hand this to me, then, then I could get, him, get to know him better. If, if I could just find the right book to read, then God would, would help me to put this all together. He already gave us the book. He's already given us his presence. He's already given us his promises. He has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. What that means is you're just as equipped as I am to live a godly life. I've known people that went to seminary and ended up being some of the most ungodly people I've known. I've known some people that had virtually no education with some of the most godly people I ever met. Because it's all what God has already done. He's already given you everything that pertains, all things that pertain to life and godliness. And how did he do that? His divine power. By his divine power, not by your human goodness, not by your religious rituals, by his divine power and only by his divine power have you been equipped with all things that pertain to life and godliness. It is his divine power. It's nothing I could ever accomplish on my own. So if, if I look at someone and say, I wish I could be that, that godly, I don't have to wish, I have to want. I need to let God work in my life on that level. Another hero of mine, I don't know why I'm in this hero mindset today, but her name was Bertha Smith. She was a, she never married. She served God as a missionary to China back in the 1920s during what was called the Shantung Revival where that whole province was gripped by the power of God. She came home and she wrote a book called Go Home and Tell because she thought that was her mission just like the Gadarene demoniac, go home and tell them what the good things that God has done for you and through you. And so she did. And I had the privilege of hearing her in person when I was in college. She was right around 90 years of age. She spoke that morning. We had traveled all night from Plainview, Texas, to Glorieta, New Mexico, to be there to hear her speak, not knowing if we'd ever get another opportunity, and we never did, the group I was with. She always spoke about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of people. And, and she, her message was always confess that sin, bring it under the blood, allow Christ to cleanse you, repent. And, and I, I had heard stories about Bertha Smith. When pastors would pick her up at the airport, when she came to, to lead a Bible studies in their church, he would greet them, the pastor would greet her and, and she would stick her finger in his face and say, will you be the one that holds back revival in your church? Are you prayed up? Confessed up to date or will you be the one that holds revival back? 
Kind of an odd greeting, but very appropriate. So after she spoke, as many of us have done in this very room, I got on my face before God and I, I wept and I cried out to God in repentance of any pride in my life and, and sin in my life. I just laid it all bare before the Lord. And so before we left the auditorium that day, uh, me and my friends went down there and greeted her. Well, I was running through my mind things I know I don't want to say to this 90, almost 90-year-old woman. Because that finger, when I would see her point it, it looked like it could go off. I'll never forget when I got there to her, I, I shook her hand and I said, Miss Bertha, God spoke to me through you today. She didn't say thank you or anything. She pointed her finger in my face and said, what'd you do with your sin? I said, I wept over it. I confessed it. I repented of it. And I'm clean before the Lord. She didn't say that's good. Anything, that pistol, I mean, that finger came back into my face. She said, you're a preacher boy, aren't you? And I said, yes, ma'am, I am. And she said, don't you ever live another day of your life not filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And turned to greet the next person. Can't tell you how many times I've, I've heard that resonate in my ears. But I told you all that to tell you someone once heard her speak and they turned to the person next to her and they said, I would give anything, I would give the world to be like her. And they said, that's exactly what it would cost you, the world. Because you can't live in the world and be like that. And it talks about that at the end of verse four, doesn't it? The, the passions and the desires of the world, that corruption and contamination we are delivered from that. We don't need to go back to it. We live forward because of his divine power. And so he says, this is what you've been given. You've been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, false teachers stop after the word things. You've been given all things. It's not what it says, is it? You've been given all things that pertain to life and godliness it's not the meeting of your the me, meeting of your lusts and your cravings in your life like it's talking about at the end of verse four it, it's not that he's he's there at your beck and call to to meet any craving you have but he's there and he has already given you all things that pertain to life and godliness what does that mean it means you will never have a need which he cannot meet you never will. You just have to know how to find need. I remember shopping with Jaron. He was young and had begun to take on the mindset of his mother. So we're in Walmart, we're in the toy section, and I'm, I'm showing him some Hot Wheels stuff, I think it was. 
And, and I knew Deanne was not going to buy it for me. So I said, Jaron, this is what you need. And he said, no, I don't. I said, yeah, okay, we need this. We, we would have so much fun with this. He said, dad, that's not a need, that's a want. Put it back. And I thought, your voice sounds really young, but it sounds like your mother. <laughs> we have to learn to distinguish between a need and a want. The scripture says, My mind is gone blank. Somebody help me start Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. He, he longs to do that. So, so that's the essence of the verse. His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his glory and virtue. And another way of saying that is is just his unbounded moral purity, his virtue and his his glory. He has, has called us And as we respond to his call, he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It's so simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. uh, Of whom is he speaking? Well, you look back, he's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God has already given you everything that you will ever need. You are fully equipped, your backpack is loaded. Your life is rich for the taking in the area of life and godliness as you live a godly life. He has already given you everything that you will ever need. Now, have you ever been told, if you'll buy this, some salesman told you, you'll never need another one? Was that ever true? No. Had a salesman come to the church office in New Mexico one time and he was selling first aid kits. He was in a metal case, shiny and nice. And he was showing me everything in there. And he said, brother, if you'll buy this, you'll never need to buy another one. And I said, really? Are you sure? And he said, yes. And I said, well, then I don't need it. We have one in the closet in there just like it. He closed it and said, I think I just oversold my product. I said, you oversold it and undersold it. But when the word of God says it, it's not an oversell. It's not a a promise that can't be fulfilled. He's, He's given you everything at his disposal to pour toward you for life and godliness and And he's the only one that can make that offer. And he's the only one that can give that because it it comes from the essence of who he is 
And it doesn't lessen him at all to provide that for us. He has already given you everything you'll ever need. So what does that mean? That means I can get over myself and just live for him. I don't have to be running around trying to meet all my needs. In him, all those needs are met by his divine power. So keep that in mind. God has already given us everything that we will ever need. And then when you turn to verse four, here's the truth that resonates from there. God will continue to pour out to us and in us everything that he is. It's not just about what he gives us. It's about him giving himself to us. You remember when Jesus was talking to the people, he was teaching them about prayer. And he said, how many of you, if your children asked for this, you would give them that? If they asked for bread, you wouldn't give them a stone, would you? If they asked for fish, you wouldn't give them a scorpion, would you? Then he said, how much more will your heavenly father give his Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You see, when we think about receiving, we think about getting stuff. We think about people just giving us something. But here, this passage is not talking about just in verse 3, what he is giving us, the stuff he's giving us. But verse 4 turns and says he's giving of himself to us, which is huge. By which. Now, just think, a verse starts like that, by which you should be thinking by what? Because it's obviously a transition from the thought before. So when you think about the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, that calling based on his divine power and his provision, by that, he has given us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these, you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption, it's being a moral corruption that is in the world through lust, not just sexual desire, but any evil craving of that which would take the place of God. So look again at the pattern of the passage. Here it says, this is what you have been given. You've been given exceedingly great and precious promises. They are huge promises. They are a treasure. They are precious. But it goes on to say that through these, there's, a, there's an end to those means that through these precious promises that you've been given, you'll feel better when you go to sleep at night. No. You'll have better relationships. That's not what it says. That's all byproduct. That through these, you may be partakers of the divine nature. Not that you'll just be the best human you can be, but you will be a human partaking of God himself, his divine nature. This is not speaking of the false doctrine 
of uh, the Latter-day Saints where they believe that as God is now, we can become because as we are now, God once was. Uh, There's a false doctrine there that says we theomorph, I guess you call it. We morph into a God. That's not what this is talking about. We partake of his divine nature by the presence of the Holy Spirit and Christ-like qualities being perfected in us. And, and that can't originate with us because there's nothing Christ-like that just flows out of us, but the Holy Spirit in control of our lives begins to produce the fruit of the Spirit. And when you look at the fruit of the Spirit, that is a graphic description, description of who Jesus is. And, and we're partaking of his divine nature. It's not like we got close to some celebrity or some person that is a a know-it-all in some field that we can partake and pick their brain. No, we are partakers of the very divine nature of God. Not that we ever become divine, but as we partake of that, we grow more and more Christ-like. And if you're not becoming more and more Christ-like, then you're not partaking of what God has been giving you. And notice how it's in the past tense. By which you have been given exceedingly great and precious promises. It's in the past. It's done. The promises are there. Here's what's to do in the present. That through these, you may be partakers of the divine nature. You see, there's, there's one thing worse than not having a Bible. I think it is so tragic around the world. There are people that have never held a Bible. If you've ever seen any of those videos where people got their first copy of the Bible and they are sobbing and kissing it and holding it to their heart, that is such a moving scene. But there's, there's something worse than not having a Bible, and that is not reading the Bible that you have. Contrast that with somebody that doesn't have one. Somebody that has one and never opens it and never partakes of divine truth and never participates in that divine nature through the promises in the word of God, how foolish can we be to think we are pleasing God by just showing up in church, looking bored, trying to stay awake, no, it should enthuse us to come and sing like we, we get to come sing week after week after week about the partaking of his divine nature. That's exciting. That's not boring. The world is boring. That's not boring. And so he has provided in the past for everything you will face in the future. He has given us exceedingly great and precious promises in the past, done. Now, when we begin to take those promises and and they become a part of us, then in the future, we partake of his divine nature because he has provided in the past for everything you'll face in the future And he didn't just provide you a book. He provided you himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so this rich knowledge and these promises are his provision for us. 
now that the students are about through with school, let me give you a math equation. His divine provision equals his divine power and his divine person. His divine person plus his divine power equals his divine provision. And it all centers on those promises. God gives of himself, having accomplished something in the past, he continues to do that. So God has made himself accessible to you. So when you come in prayer to God and you bring a genuine need for life and godliness, he's already met that need. He knows what you have need of before you ever ask him. However, he loves for us to ask. And he, he wants us to partake of that divine nature. Now, if you had a child that just always wanted something but didn't want you, they just wanted what you could give them, they're not, they're not showing a lot of love. And you're not showing a lot of love if you're not requiring them to give of themselves so that you can give of yourself and there can be a relationship there. That's what God has done. He's made himself accessible to us, not just in conversation, but in communion together. Paul said it this way. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. What a great picture. We're in Christ, Christ is in us. He, we are partakers of his divine nature, same concept. And he has made himself personally present with you. He has made himself personally present with you. So if I ask you now, are you a believer? Have you put your trust and faith in Christ? And you say yes, and then let me ask you the second question. Where did you carry the Holy Spirit with you this past week that he wouldn't have been pleased to be taken there? What did you say? What did I say that was displeasing to the Spirit of God within me because I, I can never set him aside and go away to do my bidding? And if I can, without any remorse or any conviction from the Holy Spirit, then I need to check and see if he's really a resident of my life. And so the reality is he, he's made himself available we are partakers of the divine nature because he indwells us. We are in Christ and you'll never have a need for which he is not sufficient. Something all of us would hate to hear when you slide the chip into the machine and it says insufficient funds or no credit available. God is never insufficient. His bank is overflowing with provision for his people. Not in some crazy fanatical way, but everything for life and godliness because we are partakers of his divine nature. Let me ask you a question. When you look at the future, what do you see? 
What do you see? Do you see problems? We talked about that in our Bible study this morning in here. You hear the bad stuff. You hear all this going on, all the suffering, all the pain, people groups that are tormented, etc. And it would be easy to look at the future and only see problems. But if you live out these two verses and you look at the future, you don't just see problems out there, you see promises. You see a, a future where God has already been because he lives in one eternal now. His promises are sufficient because he is sufficient. And everything ahead of you, you should see promises of God, not problems. Because there is no problem up to overcoming God's promise. So I want to close with something from uh, the little book we gave out a few years ago about the Pilgrim's Progress when we did a church-wide study of that and had it in our family Bible camp. Do you recall as Christian and his companion were traveling, they, they came to a large castle. And remember in this allegory, it was the Doubting Castle. And, and you know whose castle that was? The Giant Despair. Just think about the imagery. Here's the giant despair, and he has a castle named Doubting Castle. And he captures these travelers, Christian and his companion, and he takes them to the deepest, darkest heart of that dungeon of the castle, chains them there, and begins to torment them there. Have you ever been in Doubting Castle? It's not a fun place to be. Because not only are you doubting, but the giant despair is tormenting you. Because he's gotten your eyes off of Christ. And so you're in Doubting Castle and the giant despair. So he would come in and, and beat them and torment them. He would threaten them. And then... He, he was married to this very, very evil woman named Diffidence. And she would encourage him. And so he, he's trying to torment them to the point that they will destroy themselves. Because that's what the devil, through despair and doubting, wants to happen in your life. He wants you to self-destruct. And so after days of torment and pain, here's what it says. When morning came, giant despair showed the pilgrims the bones and skulls in the castle yard and told them he was going to kill them. Then he yelled, now go, get back to your cell. Your end is coming. With that, the giant punched and beat them all the way back to the prison. They were very weak and faint. But when they began to pray, and they prayed all through the rest of the night, 
Christian suddenly spoke up. How foolish I've been, he cried. We stayed here all these days when we could have walked out freely. I just remembered, he said. I have a little key in my pocket next to my heart. It is the key of promise. I'm sure it will open any lock in Doubting Castle. He tried it on the dungeon door, and with that, the bolt gave way, and the door flew open, and the two of them fled to freedom. You've got the key. Precious an exceedingly great promise. And the last thing despair and doubting wants you to do is to remember the key in your heart, the promise of God. You've got the key. Don't forget the key. Because not only does that keep you in doubting castle in despair, it keeps everybody around you there. Just listen to those words. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption, the contamination, the immorality that is in the world through lust and evil desires. And maybe today you just need to grip tightly the word of God and say, thank you for the key. I'm out of here. No more will I live in the doubting castle and no more will I be beaten up by the giant despair. There is great power and a promise from God. We would like to thank you for joining us for this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. First Baptist desires to be a house of prayer with a heart for people, making a difference by making disciples from our neighborhood to the nations. If you would like more information about this ministry, please visit www.firstcrockett.org. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you.